Section three of Yet Again by Max Beerbohm. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. A Memory of a Midnight Express. Often I have presentiments of evil, but never having had one of them fulfilled, I am beginning to ignore them. I find that I have always walked straight, serenely impressioned into whatever trap fate has laid for me. When I think of any horrible thing that has befallen me, the horror is intensified by recollection of its suddenness. But a moment before I had been quite happy, quite secure. A moment later, I shudder. Why be thus at fate's mercy always, when, with a little ordinary second sight, Yet, no, that is the worst of a presentiment. It never averts evil. It does but unnerve the victim. Best, after all, to have only false presentiments like mine. Bolts that cannot be dodged strike us kindliest from the blue. And so let me be thankful that my sole emotion, as I entered an empty compartment at Hollyhead, was that craving for sleep, which, after midnight, overwhelms every traveller, especially the Saxon traveller from tumultuous and quick-witted little Dublin. Mechanically, comfortably, as I sank into a corner, I rolled my rug round me, laid my feet against the opposite cushions, twitched up my coat-collar above my ears, twitched down my cap over my eyes. It was not the jerk of the starting train that half awoke me, but the consciousness that someone had flung himself into the compartment when the train was already in motion. I saw a small man putting something in the rack, a large black handbag. Through the haze of my sleep I saw him, vaguely resented him he had no business to have slammed the door like that no business to have jumped into a moving train no business to put that huge handbag into a rack which was for light baggage only and no business to be wearing at this hour and in this place a top hat these four peevish objections floated sleepily together round my brain. It was not till the man turned round, and I met his eye, that I awoke fully, awoke to danger. I had never seen a murderer, but I knew that the man who was so steadfastly peering at me now... I shut my eyes. I tried to think. Could I be dreaming? In books I had read of people pinching themselves to see whether they were really awake, but in actual life there never was any doubt on that score. The great thing was that I should keep all my wits about me. Everything might depend on presence of mind. Perhaps this murderer was mad. If you fix a lunatic with your eye... Screwing up my courage... I fixed the man with my eye. I had never seen such a horrible little eye as his. It was a sane eye, too. It radiated a cold and ruthless sanity. 
It belonged not to a man who would kill you wantonly, but to one who would not scruple to kill you for a purpose, and who would do the job quickly and neatly, and not be found out. Was he physically strong? Though he looked very wiry, he was little and narrow like his eyes. He could not overpower me by force, I thought, and instinctively I squared my shoulders against the cushions, that he might realize the impossibility of overpowering me. But I felt he had enough science to make me less than a match for him. I tried to look cunning and determined. I longed for a moustache like his to hide my somewhat amiable mouth. I was thankful I could not see his mouth, could not know the worst of the face that was staring at me in the lamplight, and yet what could be worse than his eyes, gleaming from the deep shadow cast by the brim of his top-hat? What deadlier than that square jaw, with the bone so sharply delineated under the taut skin? The train rushed on, noisily swaying through the silence of the night. I thought of the unseen series of placid landscapes that we were passing through, of the unconscious cottagers snoring there in their beds, of the safe people in the next compartment to mine, to his. Not moving a muscle, we sat there, we two, watching each other, like two hostile cats. Or rather, I thought, he watched me as a snake watches a rabbit, and I, like a rabbit, could not look away. I seemed to hear my heart beating time to the train. Suddenly my heart was at a standstill, and the double beat of the train receded faintly. The man was pointing upwards. I shook my head. He had asked me, in a low voice, whether he should pull the hood across the lamp. He was standing now with his back turned towards me, pulling his handbag out of the rack. He had a furtive back, the back of a man who, in his day, had borne many an alias. To this day I am ashamed that I did not spring up and pinion him there and then. Had I possessed one ounce of physical courage, I should have done so. A coward, I let slip the opportunity. I thought of the communication cord, but how could I move to it? He would be too quick for me. He would be very angry with me. I would sit quite still and wait. Every moment was a long reprieve to me now. Something might intervene to save me. There might be a collision on the line. Perhaps he was a quite harmless man. I caught his eyes and shuddered. His bag was open on his knees. His right hand was groping in it. Thank heaven he had not pulled the hood over the lamp. I saw him pull out something, a limp thing, made of black cloth, not unlike the thing which a dentist places over your mouth when laughing gas is to be administered. Laughing gas, no laughing matter, 
the irrelevant and idiotic embryo of a pun dangled itself for an instant in my brain what other horrible thing would come out of the bag perhaps some gleaming instrument he closed the bag with a snap laid it beside him he took off his top hat laid that beside him i was surprised i know not why to see that he was bald there was a gleaming high light on his bald round head the limp black thing was a cap which he slowly adjusted with both hands drawing it down over the brow and behind the ears it seemed to me as though he were after all hooding the lamp in my feverish fancy the compartment grew darker when the orb of his head was hidden the shadow of another simile for his action came surging up he had put on the cap so gravely so judicially yes that was it he had assumed the black cap the decent symbol which indemnifies the taker of a life and might the lord have mercy on my soul already he was addressing me what had he said i asked him to repeat it my voice sounded even further away than his he repeated that he thought we had met before i heard my voice saying politely somewhere in the distance that i thought not he suggested that i had been staying at some hotel in colchester six years ago my voice drawing a little nearer to me explained that i never in my life had been at colchester he begged my pardon and hoped no offence would be taken where none had been meant my voice coming right back to its own quarters reassured him that of course i had taken no offence at all adding that i myself very often mistook one face for another he replied rather inconsequently that the world was a small place evidently he must have prepared this remark to follow my expected admission that i had been at that hotel in colchester six years ago and have thought it too striking a remark to be thrown away a guileless creature evidently and not a criminal at all then i reflected that the most successful criminals succeed rather through the incomparable guilelessness of the police than through any devilish cunning in themselves besides this man looked the very incarnation of ruthless cunning surely he must but have dissembled my suspicion of him resurged but somehow i was no longer afraid of him whatever crimes he might have been committing and be going to commit i felt that he meant no harm to me after all why should i have imagined myself to be in danger meanwhile i would try to draw the man out pitting my wits against his i proceeded to do so he was very voluble in a quiet way before long i was in possession of all the materials for an exhaustive biography of him and the strange thing was that i could not with the best will in the world believe that he was lying to me i had never heard a man telling so obviously the truth and the truth about any one however commonplace must always be interesting 
Indeed, it is the commonplace truth, the truth of widest application, that is the most interesting of all truths. I do not now remember many details of this man's story. I remember merely that he was travelling in lace, that he had been born at Boulogne, this was the one strange feature of the narrative, that somebody had once left him a hundred pounds in a will, and that he had a little daughter who was as pretty as a pink. But at the time I was enthralled. Besides, I liked the man immensely. He was a kind and simple soul, utterly belying his appearance. I wondered how I ever could have feared him and hated him. Doubtless the reaction from my previous state intensified the kindliness of my feelings. Anyhow, my heart went out to him. I felt that we had known each other for many years. While he poured out his recollections, I felt that he was an old crony, talking over old days, which were mine as well as his. Little by little, however, the slumber which he had scared from me came hovering back. My eyelids drooped. My comments on his stories became few and muffled. There, he said, you're sleepy. I ought to have thought of that. I protested feebly. He insisted kindly. You go to sleep, he said, rising and drawing the hood over the lamp. It was dawn when I awoke. Someone in a top hat was standing over me and saying, Euston. Euston? I repeated. Yes, this is Euston. Good day to you. Good day to you, I repeated mechanically in the grey dawn. Not till I was driving through the cold, empty streets did I remember the episode of the night and who it was that had awoken me. I wished I could see my friend again. It was horrible to think that perhaps I should never see him again. I had liked him so much, and he had seemed to like me. I should not have said that he was a happy man. There was something melancholy about him. I hoped he would prosper. I had a foreboding that some great calamity was in store for him, and wished I could avert it. I thought of his little daughter, who was as pretty as a pink. Perhaps fate was going to strike him through her. Perhaps, when he got home, he would find that she was dead. There were tears in my eyes when I alighted on my doorstep. Thus, within a little space of time, did I experience two deep emotions, for neither of which was there any real justification. I experienced terror, though there was nothing to be afraid of, and I experienced sorrow, though there was nothing at all to be sorry about, and both my terror and my sorrow were, at the time, overwhelming. You have no patience with me? Examine yourselves. Examine one another. In every one of us, the deepest emotions are constantly caused by some absurdly trivial thing, or by nothing at all. 
Conversely, the great things in our lives, the true occasions for wrath, anguish, rapture, what not, very often leave us quite calm. We can never depend on any right adjustment of emotion to circumstance. That is one of many reasons which prevent the philosopher from taking himself and his fellow beings quite so seriously as he would wish. End of section 3